Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing uh, online? Uh, um, Uh, verses 26 to 39. Give you guys about 10 seconds to uh, get to that passage. And then I'll read it for you. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Father God, um, we thank you for this uh, this time, this service. Um, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to uh, broadcast live to those uh, who um who, who do not know this church or do not know you, Lord, I pray, Lord, that um, that you draw near and close to them um, in this time. I pray for this passage that it may speak not in, in the lives of all of us that are listening, um, and that uh, I pray for Kyleo as he, he comes up to preach it, uh, that you give him uh, words to speak, that you give him a spirit of, of, of grace, a full spirit uh, that's uh, ready to deliver the word as you have so many times through so many uh, pastors throughout the years since the time of Christ. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.
Good morning and welcome to Real Life Church. So glad to see so many of my brothers and sisters online, old friends and new. I am really, I'm just really delighted to hear. So glad to see so many of my friends basically online and so many of our local family members in Bridesburg and abroad joining us for worship service. I know this is a really interesting time for the church. Um, we're doing something we've never done before. We are live streaming today to bring as much of our normal worship home to you. So while we're all plugging and making our way through COVID-19, this is one of the things that we're just doing as a church to make sure you're still able to get the gospel and we're still able to interact virtually if we can interact at least face to face. So that being said, my name's Kyleo. I'm a resident preach preaching deacon here at Real Life Church. Um, that was Brother Anthony who just read for us um, the passage that we're gonna be in because we have been in a series from the books called Jesus is Greater Than. And what that means for us is Jesus is greater than basically comes from the idea from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than whatever else you place on the other side of that equation. Jesus is shown to be greater than so many things that we see in this text. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more as we work our way through this series. But before we get there, one of the things that really has been on my mind as I've been working through this crucial passage is an old song. It was sung by a woman named Mahalia Jackson. Some of y'all never heard of her, but I believe she was the greatest gospel artist who ever lived. And Mahalia Jackson, in addition to being a gospel artist, was a civil rights activist. But she sang this song about her walk with Jesus, and it says, How I got over, Lord, how I got over. You know my soul, look back and wonder how I got over. How I got over, Lord, how I got over. Had a mighty hard time coming on over. But my soul looked back and wonder how I got over. Next verse of what she sings is she says, how I got over, Lord, how I got over. I've been falling and rising all of these years. But my soul looked back and wonder how I got over. I love that song because I know for me that song depicts a lot of what my Christian life has been like. It depicts a lot of the Christian experience. She captures the idea of it being a journey. Had a mighty hard time coming on over. And for Mahalia, she was talking about lots of different things, spiritual things, social things going on. She was in the 60s during the times of segregation and the times of Jim Crow. And she was a civil rights activist. Then she talked about, I've been falling and rising all of these years. This journey this slipping and sliding that sometimes is the Christian experience. Because sometimes that is the experience. It's not a steady incline all the way up with no slips and no falls. Sometimes it's a dip and a trip and a slip and a fall that are involved in our Christian experience. And she sings about how I got over. And that's what I like. Because as we come to this crucial text, that is where I need us to key in on thinking. The fact is getting over. How I got over. Mahalia sings about the dips, but she also talks about the end of the song is getting over, how I got over. In this passage today, we are looking at the fact that there are some people who don't get over. Some people who don't endure all the way to the end. We are in the fourth warning in the series of Hebrews talking about what's something that Jesus said, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. And now that we're there, we're seeing from this passage 
a warning against those who don't endure all the way to the end. A warning of us to stick close and to stay close to God and close to one another, close in fellowship, close to the word, close to intimacy with the Holy Spirit to ensure that we do make it all the way over. We've been in our, series, in our Hebrew series entitled Jesus is Greater Than. Jesus has been compared to everything and everyone under the old covenant and is coming out on top. Now, we've seen that Jesus has been shown to be superior to sacrifices, earthly sacrifices of bulls and goats. His blood has a special power and a special quality that theirs does not. We've also seen Jesus as superior to Moses, where Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son of God. We've seen that Jesus is a greater high priest than Aaron, where Aaron just served over the people. Jesus serves over the whole house of God, past, present and future. He's a higher priest. Not only is he that, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We've seen that Jesus is someone who has not only has ministered and will minister forever, but he's from an entirely different order of priests, one that preceded Aaron and also has proceeded Aaron. We see that Jesus has got more power and authority than the angels. We watch shows touched by an angel, and we think about angels and how mighty and strong that they are and the things that they can do. But Jesus is shown in the book of Hebrews to be greater than them. We see that Jesus is greater than even the prophets, that Jesus speaks a better and more sure word than the prophets. We sing that Jesus also brings a better covenant. Jesus' covenant offers internal cleansing and washing, whereas the old covenant only did external cleansing and washing. So the old covenant took care of your sin on the outside, but it did nothing for the man on the inside. That's the strength and the beauty and the glory of the new covenant. Where the old covenant only washed sin off of you, Jesus' new covenant is scrubbing sin out of us. And this results in a new radical confidence that we can have that Jesus is greater than anything you put on the other side of that equation. But we come to this passage. And it's an interesting passage because it's our fourth warning in the book of Hebrews. Our first warning came from Hebrews chapter 2, and it was this. Our first warning was a sermon I preached, and it's this. If you have your Bibles, um, I'm in the ESV translation, uh, but we're in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And it says, this, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, proved to be reliable, <clears throat> and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That first sermon in this book of Hebrews was our first warning. And I entitled it Drift or Draw, which brings this reality before us. We're either drawing closer and closer to God in the passionate and hard pursuit after intimacy with him, or we're drifting further and further away from him in a casual approach towards our walk with him. Drift or draw. That has been the whole message from this series of Hebrews. All of these glorious truths that have been laid out for us should lead us to drawing more closer to Jesus Christ. But instead, we have something different happening in Hebrews chapter 10 at the end. We don't see a draw. We see a drift. 
this warning looks exactly like what happens when someone doesn't heed that first warning that was given us in Hebrews chapter 2. We come up on these chilling, chilling verses. I'm going to read our text one more time for us to make sure this. You should be back in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. And they read thus, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I'm going to pray for us one more time as we continue in the preaching and hearing of this word. Father God, we come before you and I thank you that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is liberty. Lord, I thank you that there's also therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And though these verses have been used in the past to beat down well-meaning and well-intentioned Christians and to unsettle and disturb the hope of many, they pack a serious warning to us today. And so, God, may we recognize the warning that's contained in here, but may we also rejoice in the hope at the end of this passage that we also see that there's a way forward as sure as there's a way backwards. And so speak to us now, God. Move by your spirit of power. Comfort us, assure us, challenge us, and convict us. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. This is a great passage. And I talk about the fact that it mentions that there's two sections of this series. There's a warning, and then there's a comfort. See, all good preachers have a responsibility. We, we have the responsibility of comforting the afflicted or afflicting the comforted. We have the responsibility of making sure that everyone knows just where they are. We comfort the afflicted, those who are in trouble, who need lifting up, who need edification, who need encouragement, who need a push. <clears throat> but we also have a responsibility to afflict the comforted. Those who may be casually drifting and not aware of the danger that's lurking just around the corner. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing in these verses. He is about to afflict the comforted. He's about to issue a severe and strong warning. 
Pastor Rob uh, in our series brought us this great reality last week where he said, he said these wonderful words um, uh, that I wrote down. <clears throat> he said, because of what Jesus has done for us, you under the new covenant can now go where Moses under the old covenant could never go. And sometimes the reality of that, what do they say? Familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for us and grace under the new covenant leads to us getting too casual in our walk and our approach towards God. And that is one of the real dangers that is being an, a warning that is outlined for us. Now, this verse, this, this passage is very, very contra controversial because sometimes our fear and our worry is, well, what is this verse that's talking about? Is it talking about apostasy? Is it talking about the fact that real Christians can walk away? But I think the point of this passage, when you take both of these passages together, is this. And it's found in one of the verses in our passage. The Lord will judge his people. The Lord will judge his people as sure as he will judge his enemies and adversaries. And that is a clear idea that we see, which is why we must take this warning seriously, as seriously as we'll take the comfort. When Pastor Rob made that statement, it made me think about this. It made me think about the fact that before we get too comfortable in the holy places, right, because that's what the new covenant did for us. That's what the new covenant meant. Moses, Jesus enabled us to go where Moses could never go. Moses could only go to the outer court. He could not go into the holy of holies like the high priest. But because of what Jesus has done, as Hebrews chapter 10 earlier told us, he brought us straight into the presence of God, gave us direct access. And us getting too comfortable with Jesus could lead to us walking into that holy place. And before we put our, our proverbial feet up on that holy furniture, we need to recognize that Jesus is not just our homeboy. He is the living God. I remember seeing those T-shirts going all around. Jesus is my homeboy and Mary is my homegirl. And it led to this low esteem and low view of God, this casual approach towards the awesome, holy, and mighty living God. That is not the approach that we want to take. We want to recognize that Christ has opened up a way to embrace us, for us to be embraced by God, for us to be welcomed into his community, welcomed into the kingdom, for us to be sons and daughters of it. But we still must maintain a respect and a holy reverence for the fact that the Lord will judge his people as surely as he will judge his adversaries. And this brings us to verse 26. Let's jump right into our text. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's scary. The immediate challenge of this verse lies in the question of whether the author is talking to believers about believers, or is he speaking about unbelievers to believers? The personal pronoun of we is going to shed some light because the author says, for if we, he includes himself in this audience. The people that he's issuing this warning to, he includes himself in it. This pronoun of we sheds light on the matter and that whoever the audience for the letter is, the author believes he is someone who also must adhere to the warning from danger. The warning applies as much to the writer as it does to the reader. 
So we had to think about the audience. What's the original context of the audience that we received? Now remember, the book of Hebrews was written to Jews who come out of the old system, out from under the old covenant into faith. The apostles from the book of Acts were preaching the gospel. We saw and two and 3,000, 5,000 people were getting saved in a day. These were Jews who grew up going to the temple, worshiping at the temple, giving sacrifices at the temple. They were lives were steeped in the old covenant. But when they heard the gospel of the kingdom that this man named Jesus Christ from Nazareth was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a vicarious death, which means died a death in their place, and then rose victoriously when he left the tomb empty after three days, they put their faith in Christ. And the new covenant was inaugurated. God did a supernatural thing from heaven where that the temple veil, so in the temple there was a veil that separated the outer place from the most holy place, for the holy place from the holiest of holies. That access that I talk about was separated by a veil. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two. As sure as Christ's body was torn asunder, so was that veil torn in two to signify that a way had been made into the presence of God. And people who were once outside could now be inside. That's some of the beauty that we recognize that those people, those believing Hebrews and people who were around them who were not believing but who had connected themselves some way to the assembly are the people that this author is writing to. And remember, they grew up thinking that when you sinned, when you failed, you brought a bullock, a lamb, a turtle dove, or something to the house of God to be killed in exchange as payment for your sin. But when Christ died, the Bible says he was a once-for-all sacrifice. No other sacrifice could ever be made. But what if some of those believers didn't heed the warning? that's mentioned in this passage. What if some of them said to themselves, you know what? I'm going back to the old way. I'm going back to under the old way. I'm going to buy my lamb, my dove. Jesus foreshadowed this in his ministry in the Gospels. We hear a part where Jesus has been preaching the Gospel and he's walking with the, with the disciples. And it says, and many who walked with him, walked with him no longer. And the apostles looked around at their dwindling numbers and said, well, Lord, it's a hard thing to be saved. And Jesus looked at them and asked a hard question. And he said, will you leave me also? And the apostles responded this wonderful way. They said, Lord, where else can we go? See, the, what I've entitled this sermon is, is no turning back, only moving ahead. There is no turning back from Christ. And this verse is so serious because there's nowhere else to go. Because there is no other sacrifice that can be given for sin. There's no other sacrifice that can be accepted as payment for our sins. Jesus Christ is a supreme, sufficient 
sacrifice. You cannot offer God your good parenting, your best life now. You're helping old ladies across the street. You're baking cookies for kids. You can't hand God enough good works to atone for the sins that we're guilty of. God is speaking one language, and he's only accepting one thing. He's accepting Jesus Christ. And the good news, according to Romans, is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And not only did he die, but he loved us enough to be glad enough to give. So he says, but we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice of sin. Now, what this doesn't mean is this isn't talking about people who are sinning just as a result of of ongoing battles with sin in the Christian life. That's not what this is talking about. Every believer will struggle with sin, with fighting sin. We're not perfect until we are not completely perfected until we get out of here. Right now, to be saved means to be saved from the penalty of sin. Presently, we're being saved from the power of sin. And one day, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. But though we are freed from the penalty, we still live in the presence of it. God is consistently delivering us from its power as we grow in holiness with him. So this verse isn't talking about that. It's not talking about our daily struggle against sin. This verse is talking about someone who has literally done something as put very well by, I want to say, Dr. John MacArthur gives us a wonderful definition of what we see happening here. He calls it the negative response to the new covenant. And he describes it as this. The kind of sin that is being addressed here is that where Christ has offered a blessing that is full and forever, we see people who walk away from that. There's an explicit rejecting the unique and solely sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. This person who at one time was aligned with the, with, uh, in the assembly of God, aligned with the people of the truth, aligned with the organization of the truth, has turned away from that, has left. And how do we know that? We know that because of what verse 25 warned us about. Verse 25, which precedes this chapter, talks of, or precedes this verse, talks about do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That that is what some people did. They gave up on the community of the people of God. I'm not talking about people who missed the Sunday here or there. We're talking about people who have looked at the local church and said, you know what? I don't need that. I can do this other thing. I can go this other way to atone and cover for my sins. And that is the warning. It is about persons who have genuinely walked away and said, this sacrifice of Jesus Christ is comparable to any other sacrifice, any other religion, any other covenant. And I can get to God by any other way. Or, even worse, it's not even necessary. Much of the confusion around this verse stems from the fact that it's disconnected from the command that we see in 25. Blatant violation of that command leaves us with no ability to do what we see in verse 25, which is the three let us's. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. 
verse 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Get scary. Let's us know that for this person who turns around and looks at Christ and says, eh, don't need it. It's not talking about a person who's rejected the gospel, because remember, in the beginning of this verse, there's a phrase there that's that's really helps us understand if we go on deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. This is the person who has some exposure to the gospel, a person who's been in the place where the gospel is preached, a person who has seen the gospel work in the lives of others and may have even seen the gospel do some work in their own lives. That person takes a look at Jesus and says, eh. today's my 39th birthday. I'm, 30 year, I'm 39 years old, and at nine years old, I received the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. So it means today I've been walking with the Lord for 30 years. In those 30 years, I've walked with Christians who were running harder after the Lord than I have been. In those 30 years, I've met people who I felt like have been holier than me. In those 30 years, I've met, I've seen some people and I say that person is going to live long and strong for God their whole lives. They're always amazing. They love God more than me. They worship God heart better than me. They serve God more profusely than me. I've said that. And I can also tell you through tears that I've seen some of those same people today don't walk with the Lord anymore. That some of those same people have sent me texts and say, Kyleo, yeah, you still doing the church thing? I tell you through a grieving heart that sometimes when I check up on my old friends who I used to go to church with 10 or maybe 15 years ago, sometimes I hesitate because I can hear and recognize that there's a difference. That we who used to worship together, who used to sing together, who were in the choir together, who took communion together, who prayed together, who cried together, who celebrated, who stayed up late into the midnight hour talking about the scriptures, that some of those folks don't love the scriptures anymore. They don't love Jesus anymore. And the author is making sure that the Hebrews recognize this very real warning that there are some folks who are not going to make it on their own. There are some folks who are not going to go all the way. And Hebrews is letting us know about those folks. So he says, those who have been enlightened deliberately. It's not talking about ongoing sin. It's talking about a person who's in a certain state, a state of rejection, a state of going back. They've turned their back completely on what they once believed. So we see this continuing when he says, what comes for that person? Nothing but, in verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Please bear this in mind. The one writer writes this, the severe judgment mentioned in is always in proportion to the tremendous blessings of the new covenant. So that's why in the beginning of this sermon, beginning of this sermon, we talked about the greater blessings of the new covenant, how Christ is superior and greater to all these things under the old covenant. 
And the next verse is going to show us just what this point means further. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, see, this, this author is doing something. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's backing up the point that he just made. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire will consume the adversaries. Notice that word, adversaries. He's saying that people who make this turn, the people who were part of this assembly have placed themselves in a certain category. One that is designated for adversaries. And nothing, if, you, if Christ's sacrifice doesn't cover you, there's nothing else that can. That's the point. And so all that awaits them is judgment. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So remember, this author is reminding us under the old covenant. He's saying, hey, remember, under the old covenant, there were certain sins that because be certain sins that just were not covered. There was no sacrifice to cover. The penalty was death. You can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. There was no sacrifice you can offer to atone for certain sins. There were certain high-handed sins such as murder and other things that there could be no atonement for. You couldn't offer a dove or a ram or a bull for those things. And he said, Whoever has set aside, and if that person set aside the law of Moses, there was nowhere else to go. And that person died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Read this into verse 29. Remember, he's going from lesser to greater. Under the old covenant, this was your danger. Here's the greatest. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant, and has outraged the spirit of grace. There's a direct correlation. He says, under the old covenant, if you rejected the law of Moses, there was no hope. That was the old gospel. No hope for you. How much worse covenant do you think, under this new covenant, will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot, the Son of God? That statement speaks for itself. You know what it means to trample something underfoot, to treat it as worthless, to take something precious, put it underneath your feet, stub it, and, and rub it out as if it's nothing. And the conversation is, who are you doing that to? The Son of God. Whoever this Hebrew author is talking about, he's talking about people who have done that to Jesus. Profane the blood of the covenant. I mentioned the word common earlier. That to profane the blood is to treat it as if it's a common thing. To say that Jesus' blood is equal to that of a ram, a bullet, or a turtle dove. No. His blood is precious and it's perfect. And his blood has eternal qualities. That's why he offers an eternal redemption. Christ's blood differs from ours to a certain degree. Anyone couldn't just die for the sins of the world. It had to be the holy, precious Son of God. And if we treat his blood as on a common par with anything else's, 
It's dangerous. Profane the blood of the covenant and has outraged the spirit of grace. Now, notice it said it mentioned that this person in 28 dies without the testimony of two or three witnesses. And what do you see in verse 29? Three witnesses. The son of God, the blood of the covenant and the spirit of grace. That is the risk you run if this per if we have become exposed to Christ, if we have a knowledge of the truth. If we've been in a place in the community of the truth, but we turn and we walk away from that. We have three witnesses against us under the new covenant. Which means nothing can weight us but what is mentioned in verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 30. For we know him who said vengeance is mine. I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. This is very important. And this is what leads to some of the conflicts surrounding these verses. Is because the author says the Lord will judge his people. See, this verse, this passage does something for the believer. It does give us the ability to check our temperature. It gives us the ability to ask that question, where am I? In my walk with Christ. And the good news is the author is going to answer that in the next question. In just a few verses, he's going to answer that. Because he's talking to the Hebrew believers about a, a danger that exists in their midst. That some people are going back under the old covenant. But he makes a big jump when we get to verse 32. He reminds us that the Lord will judge his people. God will judge people who are in the midst of his assembly. He will. The good news is our sins are paid for in Christ. And so the judgment that awaits the second group of people we're going to discuss is different than the judgment that awaits the first group of people that we're discussing. He says these wonderful words. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Heavy passage. Heavy, heavy passage. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To fall into the hands of something is to be completely helpless at their mercy. And God in his mercy provided something. He provided Christ. But if we don't reject that, if we don't receive that, and if we reject that, there's danger that awaits us. And there's no way of escaping it. fact that he mentions the living God puts a heavy, heavy, heavy weight on it. Someone wrote this. A mortal man, however incensed he may be, cannot carry his vengeance beyond death. But God's power is not bounded by so narrow limits. 
Jesus said it this way in Matthew. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. It is a fearful thing because God will not only judge his men enemies, he will judge his own people. How do I know that? Verse 30 comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Wonderful passage, particular verses 35 and 36. Deuteronomy 32, 35 and 36. And it speaks of God judging his own people, but there's something interesting that happens at the end of that passage in Deuteronomy 32. It talks about God judging his people. At that time, that would be Israel. God's people were Israel. They were sinning. They were whoring out with other gods. They were not being faithful. They were violating the covenant. They were breaking it. And so God judged them. He chastened them. He disciplined them. They received a certain punishment. We see something happen at the end of Deuteronomy 32. Moses, the chief of God's people, the highest man in Israel, the Lord says to Moses something that we never want to hear. He says, Moses, you go up on this mountain and you look over. That's the promised land. You're not going. You go up on this mountain and you die and be gathered to your fathers because you broke faith with me in the wilderness. We see God disciplining and judging his people. And we recognize that because of that, this verse makes it abundant, this passage makes it abundantly clear. It is a fearful thing, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hand of a living God. Okay, that's the heavyweight. <laughs> Passage takes a wonderful shift. That's not the end of it, though. He's talked about, he's issued a warning. Now he's, he's afflicted the comforted. Now he's going to comfort the afflicted. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard So now, he said, after you were enlightened, you endured, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So we talked about people who had received some knowledge of the truth, and now he's mentioning some people who were enlightened. And he says, you. So he's talking to his readers. There's a difference between those people we just talked about and you. The, earlier, and I believe in Hebrews chapter 6, he says, but, beloved, we are concerned of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. This is that. He says, well, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, enlightened, Greek word photizo. This word means to give light in a spiritual sense. This means that this particular group of people, their knowledge, they went a step further than just having a knowledge of the truth. They received that truth in a special way so much that it shone in their souls. That they were enlightened, that their spiritual truth was illuminated for them in such a way that they acted on it. How did they act on it? What you see next, you endured. Enlightened, you were enlightened, and you endured. Other people received the knowledge of the truth, but they turned back. You were enlightened, and you endured. 
one of the things I praise God for right now is the fact that I, I'm standing here 30 years after believing in Christ. I was enlightened, and I've endured. And, and continuing to endure by the grace of God. It's amazing. It's wonderful. He says, you were enlightened, and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Like I said, as to quote Sister Mahalia, falling and rising, slipping and sliding, dipping, sometimes diving, but going up the whole time and still here today. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. This word, so we got enlightened, we got endured. And endured, simple thing in the Greek, it actually is a war term. It meant to stand your ground. That's what it means. Endured means to stand your ground. In the spiritual sense, when these guys were enlightened, the truth that they en were enlightened to, they were able to stand their ground and hold on to it. They didn't give it up. They didn't waver. They didn't change positions or change course. The truth that God made clear to them about Jesus Christ, that no other sacrifice could be issued, they stuck with them. Once and for all, done with the temple. You endure a hard struggle. This particular word, so hard struggle comes from the Greek of athletios, which is the word that we get athletics from. He uses this warlike mentality term and then shifts over to an athletic struggle, a hard struggle. Meaning this thing was not just mental and spiritual. At some points, it was physical. There was a physical exertion accompanied by this hard struggle. Sometimes it was just doctrinal and, and thoughts and, and notions that they had to contend with. But at other times, it was physical. We're going to see that as we read on. And other interesting factor about this is beautiful is that the light that shone in these Christians shown out of them. The light that they received from God that shone into them also began to show out of them. And we're going to see why. How, one of the ways it's shown out, they endured. <laughs> they persevered. Here's how else it's shown out of them. Verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. That light that they received led to them sometimes living in such a way, living in such a countercultural way in their day, that it led to them being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Means their, their, their affliction wasn't private. Them being maligned by people, it wasn't private. It was public. Christians in this century were taken, were drunk, were taken into theaters and put on stage and mocked, and people threw tomatoes and vegetables and rocks at them and made fun of them. That was some of what the Christian what Christians experienced in this century. We know what Nero later did, where Nero used Christians in order to be lanterns in the city of Rome. Take a Christian, dip them in tar put them on a stake, and set them on fire. All of this was public, but it didn't stop them. Reproach means verbal. They deal with verbal insults. 
people talking about them, saying things that weren't true about them, putting them down. And he separates afflictions to talk about the death. They also dealt with physical implications. The first one coming up and sometimes being partners with those so treated. What does he mean by that? Let's see. Next verse. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding. These Christians, see, back in the day, you know, before it was it's kind of cool now, you know, you get seen on the bus going to prison to see your homeboy or your friend or whoever. It wasn't back in their day, right? Just kidding. Wasn't back in their day because prisons were a lot different. So when you went to prison, uh, you didn't get three squares and a blanket. You were in a dungeon. You didn't get clothes. You didn't get food. If you got sick, you didn't get medical treatment. So if someone went to prison, if no one came to care for them, to bring them food, to bring them a blanket, to bring them clothing, or to bring them medicine, they just didn't get it. But these Christians had compassion on those in prison, that they would go to their brothers and sisters who were in, who were in prison, and they would serve them even there. The next danger was the fact that you showed up to care for this person in prison could make you an accomplice, because they could be in jail for worshiping Christ, and now you show up to serve them, you could be mistaken or unrecognized as a Christ worshiper as well, and then suffer the same treatment. Or worse. But they didn't care. They endured. They persevered. They went all the way. And here's how they did it. Joyfully. 34. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now that's big because we know in America for us in our day, our stuff is our stuff. It's your stuff. I had a friend, she may be watching right now, I'm going to check. But I had a friend I grew up with. She got hit by a car one day, a very nice car. And the man jumped out of the car and said, my car, as she was laying on the ground. <laughs> Terrible. We like our stuff. For these Christians, their stuff could be taken away from them. And they joyfully didn't care. They didn't have their hands gripped so tight around their stuff that they couldn't live without it. That's a lot of what we see going on right now, especially with COVID-19. A lot of our stuff has been taken away from us. No Disney, no ESPN. We're losing American idols by the left and the right in droves. Christians have to be careful about how we're responding to the temporary removal of these things because these people were able to let things go that they owned. It could be a home. It could be some of their wealth. Some of their property was seized, taken. And they were able to endure joyfully. Why? Since you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They were looking more forward to what they would get later versus trying to get their best life now. See, that's a real characteristic of faith. Faith is all about later on. 
faith is always about the future. That's next week's sermon, so I can't jump ahead into that. Faith is all about the future, and these Christians recognized that what they had in the future was so sure and so fixed and so definite because they had great faith in God that that faith was able to come back into the past. But Tim Keller said it this way. He said, hope is being able to borrow from the future. They were able to, because they had so much faith and so much hope in what they were going to get, the inheritance that they had in Christ, that they were able to smuggle some of that possession spiritually back into their present to get them to endure all the way to the future. And because of that, he writes this next wonderful voice, verse, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is real interesting. Because we talked about the fact that they have endurance. He's like, no, guys, this is what's true about you. Judgment for those other folks, but for you, you're enduring. And it is a sign of life. It is an encouragement. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. Don't give up. Don't turn around now. Keep going. It has a great reward. What you need? Now, this is real interesting, right? Because he doesn't even pray or say what you need is to be delivered from those people who are doing this stuff to you. He just says you need more endurance. You have need of endurance. And God, in allowing the difficulty, is giving you the ability to develop what it is that you really need. Sometimes you don't need to get out of trouble. You need to learn how to endure. And that is what this author is letting people know. We come with, with every creative way we can to get ourselves out of trouble. But God's like, no, you need to endure. You have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, because the picture, the idea is this, the will of God is on the other side of a hard thing. You may receive what is promised. What's promised? These wonderful verses. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Who's the coming one? Jesus. <laughs> He's coming back. <laughs> he is coming back. Yet a little while. He says, we haven't got long, y'all. We ain't got long to wait. He's coming back, and he will not delay. He's not going to be a minute late. He's going to be right on time. Just when you think you can go no longer, Jesus will show up. In the meantime, my, my righteous one will, shall live by faith. He will live by faith. See, the other one, our previous persons were characterized by fear. This group is characterized by faith. And that's the distinguisher. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Powerful, powerful words. He closes even with just a little bit more warning, but now he's about to swing back right in to some comfort. But Right? All the old preachers say that's when you get excited, when you hear the word but. 
that conjunction of contrast. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. <laughs> Jesus said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. The author is echoing that spiritual truth. We're not those who shrink back. We're not turning back. Take what you want. Because the world and the devil can take everything from you, but they cannot take Jesus. They cannot touch your inheritance. And God allows his church, allows his house sometimes to come even under that judgment for this reality to be manifested. And I like this. It also lets us know something else about endurance, something that probably no other preacher would say. You can bring God pleasure. You can make God smile. And this verse is telling us how. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I have no pleasure in him. Which means, when he endures, God is pleased. God is glorified. And you bring joy to the heart of our Savior, our God. But he says for you, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith. Wonderful passage. Next week, we'll be going into faith. Chapter 11. But as I, as I think about this, I, I think about um, one of the things that the Lord brought to my remembrance and to my heart. Is in regarding that first passage was a, is a heavy passage. It's a big bite to chew on. I pray God cleans up all my mistakes and how I dealt with it. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's a reality that we must take great care. We will lose friends. I had some friends who, who were part of this uh, church one time, and they said, Kyleo, We'll never leave. We'll be here even if it's just you, me, and Pastor Rob sitting in the building. We will be here. And they're gone today. <laughs> it wasn't very long after that that we parted ways. Because that will happen. Some people will not endure. But the good news is, that's not you. That's what the author wants them to know. That's not you. We not of those who shrink back and are destroyed because going backwards the way backwards leads to destruction but the way forward leads to preserving of the soul amen let's pray father god i thank you for the truth of your word and just for how great you are what a great god you are what a great god you are you loved us and you provided a way for us in Christ to endure all the way to the end. Even when we're discomforted by the, the shocks and the warnings in your scriptures, we have great assurance and comfort that ultimately you are going to carry us all the way through. God, may people who may have wandered back have heard this message today and realize that even to hear this message is a sweet call to return to you. 
even to hear the message that there are some people who shrink back and are destroyed and suffer a fierce judgment, that even now there's a call to return to you and love because you will forgive and you will show grace. Sometimes, Christians, we do lose our footing. Sometimes we do go astray. We go off track. But, Lord, you're able to bring us back. May you open the eyes of prodigal sons and prodigal daughters out there this morning who have wandered, who have drifted, and let them know that there is a home that they can return to. That so long as they are breathing, so long as they can turn to you completely and fully in faith and endure and run on all the way to the end, there is hope. Lord, we commit this word to you. We thank you for giving it to us. And we ask you to use it to take us from where we are to bring us to where we need to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Coming up next, oh, you just went out. Oh, coming up next, we'll be coming to a time of communion. Um, and so the next person you see will be Brother Anthony walking us through communion. And it's the perfect thing to do at a time like this. Communion is our reminder that we celebrate. Paul said, you do this as often as you like. And every time you do, you celebrate the Lord until he comes. You celebrate the fact that he lived and that he died and that he's coming back to get us one day. So let this be a time that you do that, that you celebrate the Lord until he comes.
So at this time, um, we do uh, we do communion together. Um, and so for, you, for those who are not a, a part of this church or don't gather this church, uh, we do this specifically as it's commanded in Scripture to do this in remembrance of Christ, just as Christ has commanded us to do uh, in the Last Supper. Uh, and also through uh, the letter of uh, 1 Corinthians, which also gives us the ability uh, to um, be able to uh, share communion together so that we can do this in remembrance of Christ. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, the passage from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, uh, verses 23 to 26. And what I'll do is, uh, for each element, I'll pause and um, and, and present that uh, to myself. Um, and if you guys have bread or wine at home, um, you guys are also willing to do, can also do, join along and do this with me. Okay, so uh, I'm going to read. I'm going to read from uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, uh, verse 23. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Praise God for you guys joining us today and for um, especially to our real life local family. We missed you guys. I'm so looking forward to COVID-19 being over so that we can be together again and we can hug and squeeze like we usually do. Um, let me pray for us one more time. Um, give us this sweet benediction, especially in light of all of this and in regards to COVID family. Make sure that you are serving those around you. I was able to speak with a really good friend the other day and she said, we're not Kylie, we're in Christ, and we're not afraid of men, um, and our responsibility is not to fear the diseases that are in them, it's to fear God and to serve him. And so make sure that you make, a, you make yourself available as much as you can um, to protect yourself, but also to serve those around you who may need help, um, to just not, to just make sure that we can do the good. Um, that we see our brothers and sisters in this passage that we read about today, that they were able to joyfully risk courageous hospitality. That's what we saw going to the prison and visiting the sick. That was courageous hospitality. Let's make sure that even in the midst of this, we do the same. Our benediction comes from Jude um, verses 24. Now unto him that is able um, to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding glad joy. To the only wise God be majesty, dominion, and power, hence now and forevermore. And if you're out there, all God's people say amen. Be blessed. Have a great day. And we will hopefully see you again soon in the future.